This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers show number 50. Christian, we made it all the Ooh. way to 50, recorded on October 15th, 2018. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future. Literally, tonight, shaping the future. If you have questions, comments, contributions, you can always contact us. Send us an email, jim at theaverageguy.tv. You can catch Christian over there. He's Christian at theaverageguy.tv. Find me on Twitter, at Jay Collison, or Borg Whisperer for Christian over there. Theaverageguy.tv, powered by Maple Grove Partners. Get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people that you know and you trust. And that even includes for podcasters. That's even media hosting. Ten bucks a month, they'll get you there for most people contact maplegrovepartners.com if you are interested if you haven't subscribed yet do it there's some way no matter how you're listening in most cases there's some way to, to to subscribe get it done we're back we're doing this thing all the time now cyber frontiers get it done christian welcome back jim thanks good to be back um we have officially hit fall by definition because i'm wearing a sweater today so that's that's how you know it's yeah, it's time. We got, two, we got two inches of snow yesterday. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Two inches. It's just a little band that went through. Everybody else is fine, but we got a little snow. So yes, yeah, yeah it's, it's it's been pretty warm in this area, with the exception of the uh, well, we've had some bands of hurricane weather, both with Michael and with um, Florence. So, um, but by and large, this is really the first week where it's a bit bit crisp in the air. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we got a lot. Fall always brings fall recruiting for me. I had a gal at a polo on. I should have left it on. I didn't know we were going to talk about a little bit of that. Oh, yeah. I, I still wear my gal polo. It's great. I, know. I, I have been. Wear. I have been wearing less of it on the podcast just because I, I, I don't know why. I should probably wear it. Most people know I'm a technology recruiter for Gallup. And so my day job is to go around uh, specifically to college campuses, University of Maryland. Uh, was one of my campuses used to go to to George Mason, George Washington out in the D.C. area. And then, of course, UNL, UNO, we go down to Northwest Missouri State, UT Dallas are some of the schools that we go to all the time. Christian, one of the challenges for us in recruiting in technology has always been because of our international and the, our international recruiting, right, our students that we get from India and China, we've always had to require a bachelor's degree for yeah. a lot of the positions that we have. And it's been interesting for 10 or 12 years. That was fine in most cases, right? It worked just fine. But then shortages came. I mean, we've always had a shortage, which is why we've imported in from India and China for that for that labor. Um, we changed administrations and things began to tighten up a little bit. We're not getting as many of those workers now. And we are just on the cusp, I think, in the United States of fixing our STEM education systems or getting better at it. But we still have not opened up the pipes enough that it's kind of changed the equation on the inflow of American students being able to jump into an IT job. And so because we're still hiring international, many places have a requirement for a bachelor's degree. We want to talk a little bit about that tonight. Why don't we uh, Why don't we kick it off? We'll let you kind of get started. How'd you get to... You brought this up. I just, just so folks know, you brought this up, not me, but thanks for, you're in my wheelhouse tonight. Yeah. I actually understand this stuff. Well, I, I figured we, uh, I had too many monologues preceding this. So we had to return to a dialogue for a period of time. Um, but the title of tonight's show is uh, Computing Without the BS, uh, in this case, the Bachelor of Science. And it's an interesting topic only because it's really been gaining a lot of traction in news lately. And I, you know, people are like, why is this a Cyber Frontiers topic? And while it's a lot of the core things that are going on in the topics we discuss, you know, computer science, cybersecurity, software engineering, machine learning, data science, AI, et cetera, et cetera, um, these fields are powered by brains, right? Human brains. And, And the way we develop those human brains from a young age is supposedly our education system. And so, um, in a interesting trend in the last few months specifically, a lot of the top companies are coming out and formally waiving the computer science degree requirement for their their top software engineering jobs. Uh, The three most notable ones that did this in September were Google, Apple, and IBM now 
all no longer require you to have a degree in order to get one of their top paying, you know, software engineering jobs. Um, keep in mind, most of these positions are six figure salary type jobs out of for what someone would traditionally consider out of the gate of college, right? So it's pretty remarkable when you think about it, that our economy is changing in such a way that now individuals who don't have a formal four-year degree have increasingly large opportunities to um, accumulate wealth without having the paper. And so it just got me into this larger uh, train of thought around how has the education system devalued over the years and has it become, in essence, financially overvalued by the price tags we're putting on it, but the, you know, the value proposition for students has gone down quite considerably. And when you weigh that against like, what is the purpose of an educational institution? Is it, is it to train students and prepare them for a job or is it to give them learning opportunities so that they know how to think better as individuals? And, Traditionally in education, it was the latter. It was not necessarily preparing you for a specific job or for specific capability. Um, it was really to work in a domain of expertise that you're interested in, but gain critical thinking skills that will enable you to succeed no matter what the job is. And I think we've seen two trends. One is this kind of, as there's demand for new positions in the field, universities have started curtailing their curriculum and what they're teaching more and more specifically to the types of jobs that students want to compete for when they graduate. Um, this continues a trend of de-emphasis on graduate school for many fields, but also really makes a substantial change in how curriculums are determined. Like what are the, what are the core set of standards that you're saying, if a student has this piece of paper, they know these core sets of ways of thinking. Um, a lot of that has evolved now to being, what are the specific skills or software programs or otherwise that I can teach students so that they can do well in a specific job? Um, the second trend we're seeing is a continuing rise in the cost of education. And, and so many of the top tier one, tier two schools that most people would hope to get a bachelor's degree and to do this kind of job are now costing easily north of 50000 a year just to gain a degree. Um, for your average student, you're probably going to at least have to take 25 to 50% debt off what you pay to go in. And so the question is, is a six-figure job worth six figures worth of debt? And, and I think we're starting to see a trend where we finally of my opinion, hit the limit on, on the crazy. And so now as these value propositions are starting to change, I think people are really starting to go back and reevaluate, you know, what was the purpose of the degree in the first place? And it leaves a lot of open questions. One, what are the implications for recruiting and for companies? Two, what is the implications for higher education and what they define their, their value proposition to be? And three, um, how is this impacting the overall availability of talent pool? And what does it say about where young professionals might change in how they train and tool up prior to going into the workforce? Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting environment right now because we are, you know, we're 15 years into a cycle where, we have made the computer science or computer engineering or MIS degree kind of the golden, you know, kind of the, it's the golden egg, right? And it's the end, it's the end result. Um, a lot of students uh, have been told for the longest time, hey, go in, there's plenty of jobs. And there actually are. I mean, there's, there is a lot. Christian, you had mentioned, you know, what's the purpose of college in for, for at least for the first hundred years, here in the United States, it was really to make good citizens, right? That's why we had many of the degrees were liberal arts of some kind and allowed for mostly critical thinking, right? And and as we made our way into the last century, uh, we began to see, of course, more of those specialized degrees, particularly in engineering. Uh, yeah. th that, that is where that went. And computer science is kind of, has, has kind of uh, fallen uh, along that path. 
What I've seen in the trend in the last 10 years is this emphasis on you have to have a college degree. And if you're going to do anything tech related, you're going to have to get all that in school. And there's just no possible way for the universities to keep up. Right. At Gallup, we have done we've surveyed on this and have asked the two experiences that are the most important in the college experience based on your degree when you get out and and your earning potential. And we've learned internships and mentoring opportunities are the two really most important things. And so we've been trying to put a lot of emphasis uh, in the last couple of years on getting schools to realize for students, their best experience is really a full year internship of some kind. So working in an, in the industry part-time while you're in school, as well as full-time in the summer, right? I think that really sets you up for the best industry experience. What I've also seen is I haven't seen the 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 enterprise drop its expectation of students coming in. And basically, software development has become a little bit like manufacturing in the sense that there's big shops. Uh, there's, you know, there's big shops all around the country that are hiring these students who really need them to write enterprise-grade code. But um, not like they're, they're trying to, I think they're trying to teach the students you're all going to be cutting edge uh, you know, change the world, write code that's going to be significant and the next newest thing. To be honest with you, yes, there will be a few that do that. But really what organizations are looking for is people who will come in and write smart, efficient, enterprise-grade code that can run their systems, right? right. At, the, at the end of the day, we're still, we're still creating business systems, right, for those. And so I think I feel like there's a little bit of disconnect. You mentioned it. I've watched this in the 10 years I've been recruiting. There's an arms race going on in universities about the the rising cost. And it's not totally their fault. And they're not being greedy in some ways. I've watched multiple buildings go up on campus there at the University of Maryland in, a, in an attempt to keep and attract the best students because you got to get the best students in there. You scholarship the heck out of them. They'll pull other students and international students and it's really the international students that have been paying the bills for these universities, right? It's the international students who come in on master's degree programs and pay full price, right? The best from India, the best from China are coming into this country, paying full price in a lot of cases to take it. And the universities, that's where the dollars are in these systems. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yes and no, right? So I, at least with the international population that I'm familiar with who pursues degrees at like University of Maryland or otherwise, a lot of times if they're paying full price, it's immediately being set offset by whatever professor they're working for in a graduate student capacity, whatever the funding is for that professor's research project or otherwise is usually paying for their time there, right? So that's not like a it, it, but it, those are top tier cases. That's not the, you know, your average, your average universities uh, that are running these master's programs, they're not able to sure. afford the same, they, you know, these non-endowed or. Yeah. And, and the master's versus PhD is a big thing too, right? Master's is all about degree production for industry. PhD is all about, you know, theoretical research with a path to professorialship, if that's what you so desire. Um, so I think the two have different, there's two different tracks even within graduate school now, but you know, a, a lot of it goes back to as well. I mean, this is probably the most opportunity students have had in history to acquire um, student loan debt. And that also means that it's the biggest opportunity they've had to acquire the loan itself, right? So, you know, part of, part of my reasoning here is that if we didn't have this huge infrastructure to offer student loans the way we do today, universities would not be able to increase the tuition rates to what they have today because they know the money stream is there, right? So students, sure, yeah, might be getting an additional set of buildings and, you know, additional things in their student fees, et cetera. I think the question, though, really comes to there's not much data or statistical evidence to suggest that the new building or the new fancy thing is actually leading to better students. And so, when we calibrate that against like, yeah, I definitely agree with you. There's a, there's a method to the madness in terms of wanting to attract the brightest by having the best facilities and, and so on and so forth. The list goes on. Um, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's unclear to me that it's changing the outcome right now, right? Like mm -hmm. if the top students are still going to be grabbed by the top 
companies, regardless of the, the name on their diploma, it really comes down to what is this doing to pretty much the other 90%, right? Like if your top 10% are going to get swooped to big name companies, no matter how you roll the dice, what are the high tuition rates, the large enrollment populations and so forth doing to the other 90% that's trying to weigh the value of, do I go and get this degree against, okay, I'm going to self-teach or I'm going to, you know, go to community college for two years and transfer and so forth. I mean, just, just the two years in community college and transfer approach has been widely more popular in the last five years. And it's predominantly because two of the four years that you spend getting a four-year degree at many of these schools has nothing to do with the major. So you're paying to basically take gen ed classes, which is great. But if you're doing it at 50,000 a year, is that really what you want to do? Or do you want to just heads down, get all the gen eds done at a community college for two years and then pay for the actual major that is going to teach you things that aren't as easy to go and pursue on your own. Um, And I think that's certainly a pathway. But what we're also finding is that a lot of the core things that the curriculums teach are now not necessarily core requisites that companies care about you knowing. So for example, it would be very hard for me to self-teach myself operating systems, compiler design, et cetera, right? Pretty hard, meaty topics. If you're talented, you can do it on your own, but your average person is not going to just pick up an operating systems book and write their own implementation of Linux. Just not going to happen. But if they go to school and they get this four-year degree, they now have a framework, professors, teaching aides, and other students who can allow them to complete this education. But when we measure and stack that up against what industry wants, how many industry how many industry positions in software engineering are looking for people who know how to write their own operating system? I mean, not many, right? Yeah. And so the question then becomes, what is the value proposition left other than teaching critical thinking skills? And are we doing that the way we thought we were when these programs are starting to become so curtailed to specific job and industry outcomes as opposed to thinking and having a baseline of understanding of the field that you're going in. And I think that's really where we're starting to see a giant shift. Well, we we saw a shift a couple of years ago to, to more of trade schools or code schools, right? So all these code schools started popping up around the nation, come in, get 16 weeks, get ready for industry. Because the industry was saying, hey, universities, you're not teaching the things we need these students to learn. They're not ready when they graduate from college. They heard that. So these code schools popped up. I think they had kind of limited success. Like we've already had, we've already seen one get consumed by another organization, another one close in the city of Omaha out of the three, I think that, that we started. So, and I think around the nation, I'm not hearing about those as much as I did uh, during those times. Um, I mentioned this earlier, I think we have found a little bit of a secret in the sense that we really do, for the students who decide to go to college, we really do recommend they've got to have some kind of internship during that time. This is where I think in, in some cases, industry is missing the boat because we at Gallup often say we're freshman friendly. In other words, I'll hire freshmen in college to come in and be interns. If I can keep them for two or three years, it's pretty awesome. By the time they graduate, they are really ready. In fact, they're more ready than some of the fresh grads that we hire, right? From that standpoint. Right. Um, and so um, I've been trying to get my industry brethren to start thinking about, hey, build some pipelines. If, if you're if you're if you're not satisfied with these students coming out, um, you know, but let's build some pipelines to get them ready to go so that they're in their organization for some time. That is expensive on the other end as well. You know, you got so you got your students going to school. They're paying these to, you know, these 15,000 a year. And then the industries are paying to kind of train them. But I, I do think it's yeah. a good, I think it's a good model. One of the things we've, we're experimenting with this year is what you let off with is no BS. In other words, I have a student doesn't want to go to college. We're going to build a program, uh, I think, around him that says, can you come intern for two years and then make your way right into the, right in, you know, can, can it be a trade school, so to speak, or they would have called it a uh, in plumbing if you were a journeyman or a there's there's another term that's escaping my mind when you would come in and you would work 
an apprentice. apprentice. There we go. Yeah, work as an apprentice. We're kind of following an old model that used to be really, really common among electricians and among plumbers and among construction. We're kind of starting to follow that in software. Yeah, and, and so that's that's kind of exactly my point too. Is what um, what we're seeing with that is maybe a natural correction in the value of tuitions at universities, right? Because if you don't want to go to college, there could be several reasons. It might be that you don't want a four-year commitment. It might be that it's too expensive. You know, there's a lot of different reasons that a student might particularly choose that they don't want to go through a four-year college degree program. But when you look at the apprenticeship model, it is doing exactly what I think degree programs have been starting to trend towards. So one of the observations about how degree programs are structured in computer science at many schools now is it's like a la carte add-on options, like you wouldn't believe. And what that means is that you basically have the same 100 through 300 level courses, and then you diverge into whatever your specific area of interest is within computer science. What that does though, as an effect is now I no longer, two students with the same exact degree could have completely different skill sets within the field. And it's very hard for an employer or for someone objectively on paper to look at the paper at its face value without further inspection and understand what the core set of understanding is that those two students have. Um, and so when you start to see this a la carte option, it is like the halfway point for me between a rigorous defined four-year degree program and a apprenticeship where it's like, we're going to teach you the very specific skills you need to succeed in this job capacity. Um, and as a result, you might avoid the $200,000 in debt or the stigma associated with the degree, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I definitely think it's putting more people in the job market. The question is which job market? And I think this is really key to talk about because I think we might be solving one problem, not necessarily solving the bigger problem. And I don't know if it matters yet. So software engineers, everyone needs them. Everyone wants them. So by creating an apprenticeship program around that, you might be filling some of that need. But when we talk about people who are prepared to think about frontiers and in artificial intelligence and machine learning and otherwise, I'm not sure the apprenticeship model works there yet. I'm not saying it can't succeed. I'm not saying there aren't brilliant people in the field who learn these topics without formally having an education in, in the university system. But I do think that there's a lower probability that someone who comes out of an apprenticeship isn't, isn't going to want to start an industry in that discipline and it's unclear that teaching the apprenticeship side enables you to think and reason the way that a theoretical degree might force you to, right? And so the apprentice might come out much better prepared for a software job in their one to five year mark at, at a company, whereas a new hire CS graduate might do poorer than the apprenticeship initially. Um, and then calibrate to the expectations of the environment over time, um, especially if the apprentice has the advantage of maybe doing their apprenticeship in the place that they ultimately want to work at. Yeah, I think you're I think you're kind of on there um, thinking uh, these are all this is all theoretical. This is all right. We're not we're dealing, you know, when you're talking, when you're dealing with real people, you're going to have a phenom who never goes through school and yet is going to be a brilliant mind. You're going to have someone who goes through college who can't code their way ever <laughs> into yeah. anything, right? You're going to have those outliers, and those always seem to be the ones that come up to where you try and bust it. But, but no, Christian, that's a good. I mean, I think that's a really good point in that, and this, and this is really why I like. I'm a big fan of multi-year internships as well as the four-year degree. In other words, get the students working early and often, mm. have a workload light enough that they can do that during the year. I'm a big fan of fall and spring internships, having students work, you know, during the year, even if it's limited three to five hours, just having some touch with what's going on. Right. And then having those internships, we backed the truck up all the way to high school. I mean, I'm trying to get, I just took on my first uh, this year, my first freshman from one of the local high schools 
who we want to get this experience, this enterprise experience there. And we're big advocates. While I say we have one that we're working with that's we're trying to put direct to work, most of our students end up going to a four-year degree you know, program of some kind and doing very, very well in that. But I do think we need to do both, right? I think we need to have them both studying academically to be great citizens or to be great engineers. Like there's a lot of principles in engineering when we think about computer engineering that need to be understood. Um, I don't think it's bad for every student to take C, right? I don't think it's bad for them to kind of understand like, (laughs) here's the base. (laughs) Like you should know these things. This is why, this is why Java was created because this sucks really bad when you, when you go, but there's, there's uses for it. Right. And so you, um, you get this, I think you get the best of both worlds when you do that, that way, Christian, you did that. Like that was your experience. You were always working. You compare yourself to your peers that didn't do that. Now that may be hard to do because a lot of the ACES peers you went to school with were constantly employed, but, but maybe, I don't know, compare yourself to your counterparts who may not have may have taken the only that traditional summer between their junior and senior year or didn't work as much or became teacher's assistants early and didn't get that industry experience. Did you, did you get any feel for how that might've been a different experience for him? Yeah. I mean, I think for the ACEs folks in particular, you're, you know, one of the things that Maryland pushed very heavily was kind of internships or some type of experiential learning, right? So that was always very heavily integrated that whether it was every summer or a part-time job or whatever it was, the experiential learning was a focal point for the program that I was in. I think when you compare that to even folks who were in the CS department at Maryland, but not necessarily in ACEs, sure, there was an emphasis to go to the career fair and get that internship, but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily described as experiential learning to students so much as you're going to get a job this summer and it's going to be in your field and that's going to help you land a bigger job. So um, I think the Maryland program is unique in the sense that it does offer very specific add-on packages or honors programs or methods to get where you want to go early and often, so to speak. Um, But it's not, clear to me necessarily that universe like universities for example will support co-ops but they won't necessarily encourage it so when you look at longer spans beyond a summer of like oh i want to take a year off and go work at this company which might be kind of like an apprenticeship within a degree program um i don't see that as often but there are some students who certainly pull it off they'll they'll take they'll start in the summer they'll take a semester off in that fall and then you get the winter. So they'll get a really good, like from June to end of January, which is about, you know, seven, seven, seven and a half months um, to kind of have this mini apprenticeship. Um, and I think that I've, like I said, I've seen the model work for students. I think it's been great. It's not clear to me though, that everyone is getting that value at the price tag that they think they're getting it for. And I mean, in my case too, right. I came from a background where I paid out of state tuition to get the same value proposition of what people got for in-state tuition. Right. So I paid three times as much as the average in-state student, because I knew I could definitively trace the degree in the program I was in and how it met my learning objectives for where I wanted to be when I graduated. Right. But I think for a lot of folks coming into college now, they're not necessarily, even if they know they want to do software engineering, computer science, they don't necessarily have that like feeling or that sensation that this specific university career program or CS program is going to better prepare me than other ones. And so um, again, it's the whole price tag thing, right? Like I easily could have gone to a college that would have cost three times as much. And I can guarantee you, I wouldn't have gotten the same return on investment that I did at Maryland. Maryland was very specific niche for me, but for another student who's in software engineering, it might've been terrible, right? And so I I don't mean that in like a generalization or otherwise, but that there's this ratio of value proposition that I think we are really starting to crystallize now in the field in a way that 
students are becoming more aware of, right? Before it was like professors came aware of it. Industry really knew where their deficits and shortages were, but it wasn't really clear to me that students were having the conversation in a uniform way. Um, I think now your average student is much more conscientious about seeing the data points of people who may be going to debt for college, people who maybe skip college. Um, they're, they're seeing a lot more of the data and the trend and they're saying, well, wait a second, if I can get this six figure paying job at a top company, like, what am I doing here? Right. Um, and so the, the differential on experience is still very substantial to me, no matter which pathway you go down. I don't think the pathways are producing consistent outcomes, which in a way is slightly concerning because if a industry expects to benchmark what type of employee it's getting um, based on certain data points or traits, I think that is much more confusing now than it ever has been. And quite honestly, most of these companies, the only way they get the baseline is by running their own baseline. Ultimately, whatever their job interview process is really baselining and calibrating whatever irregularities there are between two students, same degree, same GPA, supposedly same types of learning outcomes, but they perform completely differently in a functional hiring interview. And that really says something about what the companies care about versus what the university systems care about. Well, and we're finding, and I think Maryland may be an exception to this, but what we're seeing is in those universities, actually they may be the rule in this, that when we have industry partners that are partnering with the university, to guide and direct some of the program initiatives going on, we we might see better outcomes. And so, I think you know, um, you know the 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 partnership that Northrop had with Aces, while it was not necessarily an effect on every single student. In other words, not every student worked at Northrop, right? Um, the 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 fact that they were influencing the program, putting their name on it in a lot of ways putting dollars into it had an effect uh, in the curriculum development, had an effect in the school itself, had an effect on keeping an eye on the ball as far as, hey, our outcomes, our employment here, (laughs) these are some areas we want to move these students into. And that may have had, I don't know, you could speak to it more than I, that may have had an influence. You were there in the early days of ASIS in making it a little bit different uh, in in getting them both ready from an engineering standpoint and from a, I've got to make this applicable at work standpoint. I don't know. Talk a little bit about that. Do you see Northrop having an effect that way? Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly think that they had the opportunity to influence the curriculum in a unique way, right? Whether that's sending an adjunct instructor or whether that's, you know, their financial support helping to be like, here are the topics that we really care about. I definitely see the level of collaboration between universities and industry higher than it's ever been, right? And I think that really speaks to what happened in the ACES program with Northrop is that, you know, it wasn't that they were writing the curriculum and handing it to Maryland and saying, hey, teach this, but they were providing that level of support and backing that like, hey, if we want to train people to be future leaders in cybersecurity, here are the types of soft skills and technical skills that we need for them to work in that job capacity. And then, you know, professor, professorial staff and otherwise are going back and looking at like, how do the learning outcomes of what we teach now in our curriculum align to the things Northrop Grumman needs, right? And it's not even necessarily that they would make it so that it's specifically stovepipe to Northrop Grumman, but it is maybe stovepipe to a broader, I'm preparing this student to be ready for cyber, right? Which is a very misunderstood word today. Um, so I definitely think the the company interaction with the university programs is is definitely turning a lot of universities from research universities to these kind of industrial, I call them industrial universities, right? It is one step removed from an apprenticeship where, the company is interacting with your academic experience in a much more hands-on way than just going to a summer internship and coming back, right? Um, That level of sponsorship and that level of engagement where boots on the ground from both the company and the university know each other and are interacting with each other and are tracking, you know, what students come out of this program and then go to your company. You know, that's, those are significant metrics and signs that there is a real collaboration there. And I think for 
a lot of students in my program that worked out very well for them in, in their favor. Um, but, you know, the, the other thought that comes to mind here is that we're, we look at the problem in some respects with a fixed amount of static demand for jobs. And what I mean by that is we've consistently said that industry has this huge hiring demand and this huge pool of seats they need to fill, which is a true statement. But what I contend is that maybe they're not the same types of seats that we once thought we needed to fill, right? So certainly we want to hire a lot of high qualified software engineers out of college and apprenticeship or otherwise, but what will software engineers be building? Like that's a huge question, right? Because if you looked at IT 10 years ago, a lot of these engineers would be getting hired to recreate and rebuild the same internal business systems at every major company in the world, right? Everyone needs a timekeeping system. Everyone needs a payroll system. Everyone needs a server rack. Everyone needs data storage, et cetera, et cetera. There are all these base requirements to being successful in a business where you need to hire software engineers. And when I think about what cloud computing has done to the industry as a trend, it has concentrated a lot of the people who are interested in the theory and the engineering and the kind of building the base components and making them scale and work out really well. They go work in those environments, right? But then a lot of the companies that need to hire software engineers to specifically work on their application stack for their business to make money, they are, they've completely outsourced hiring all those software boots for, hey, we need these internal systems, right? No, now they're just putting it on the cloud and they have that level of trust and confidence in what the cloud can provide as a utility compute model. So I argue that, yeah, there might still be a lot of seats open, but the seats that are filled, I think are doing very different work now. Not, And I'm not talking about the evolution of technology so much as I'm talking about because we now offer these basic utility computing capabilities across the spectrum of what you might need in computer science, um, we are getting away from hiring our headcount to focus on basics, if that makes sense. And really, the headcount that does get captured is focused on very specific business and application needs. And so that, I think, has changed the demand signal, right? You still need to fill seats, but I think we are actually somewhat solving the shortage problem by the way we tool up technologies and businesses. Um, and I think that is happening on a parallel thread, completely tangential to the conversation of how we get students into those seats. That's a little discouraging for me to hear that from you, Christian, by the way, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, I'm, that's, no, I'm, that's the business I'm in. And, you know, we're, we're building and designing programs to help these students along to get them, you know, my job is just to get them to the enterprise. So get them yeah. through high school and college experiences to be able to get there. I hear our, you know, uh, our folks needing hardcore software developers, folks who can come yes. in, write web applications, C-sharp, full, yep. full web stack, JavaScript, Java, yep. right? Kind of the enterprise uh, yeah, we completely agree. We completely agree there to be clear. I'm just saying that the types of work that they might do once they get there, instead of being a C-sharp developer on, I don't know, maintaining your cluster's rack health, they're now being a C-sharp developer on an application that is adding business value to your company. Correct. Or, right. or the customer experience, right? We, they have, it's all become yes. customer yes. experience software as opposed to the infrastructure that holds it all together. And yet right. that, Infrastructure and, jobs have gotten very specialized in some yes. ways. Like we still have AWS ad administrators and folks who know Azure and, you know, right. some of those things, even though they're not on prem anymore, we still have folks managing those. It, surprisingly, we still have to have folks who manage all the permissions and all the setup and all the provisioning yeah. for these now cloud services. Oh, yeah. where they used to do it on prem, same number of staff. They're just now right. managing the. Yeah. But I do I do think that companies are getting some artificial relief in the sense that a lot of the traditional scalability and like Legos that have to be built before you can get to the business needs, like they're saving on that hiring ability and they're getting known products that are cheaper to pay for as opposed to hire in their own salaries to deal with, um, which I think is giving them and artificial relief isn't the right word, but they're definitely getting relief in the sense that now those engineers are dedicated to building the enterprise systems that the company cares about, right? Well, they should be getting scale, 
right? That's what they yes. should be getting in all this is now it's not on an, it's not an on-prem server out in North Dakota, uh, although it might be <laughs> in a data center somewhere, but you know, we're, we're getting this, this ability to scale or we should be getting this ability to scale much higher than we, we were able to before and can focus those jobs on e- even more greater scalability or transitioning that into the user experience and, writing code that hits the customer. So the, for the business need is like, is what you call it. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the other incentive piece here too, that I don't think we've discussed yet is, you know, there are companies like Google, IBM, et cetera, that have dropped the bachelor's degree requirement, but we have not talked at all about, I think probably those companies included still that pay a premium for advanced degrees. So going in the opposite direction of like research scientists, um, like seasoned software engineer that might, you know, know a lot more about like how the programming language was put together as opposed to developing well in the programming language, right? Um, I think a lot of companies will still pay a premium for bachelor's versus master's, master's versus PhD, et cetera. Um, But, you know, I, I, for example, work at a company where it really doesn't matter if it's a bachelor's degree versus a master's degree. But if you go work in the federal government, for example, all of our federal government pay scales are very much determined on like what GS level you start at is very much a factor of whether you have a bachelor's, master's, or PhD. Um, and it might mask otherwise, like you could have a bachelor's student or a student with no degree be a lot more talented in that job than someone who has a master's degree, but the master's degree person will be incentivized and paid more for the fact that they went through that degree production system. And so I think that is a traditional incentive system that might still be around that's keeping the floodgates for apprenticeships and other things from really opening them up. When we look at traditional careers like medicine or education, certainly in those fields where um, medicine, they're, they're a little bit different education where the, the caps on salaries have been kept low, pretty low. When we think about education and health, health and human services, social work, which oftentimes require the most advanced degrees when we have people getting a lot of debt to do these. As well as you think, I mean, even we require a vet, like someone who works on your pet. We don't just let them like, oh, you just came out of high school and you wanted to work on animals. Well, okay, you're, you're, you're super smart. So you get to do that, right? We still have some requirements through the system from a degree standpoint and some of those things we do. Do you think it's a short term. If we begin to do this here at this level, Christian, do you think we cause, and I think you maybe alluded to this a little bit earlier, but you could be clearer in this case, do we short hop this experience in some ways? And yeah, they can come and do some code, but some of the advanced thinking they may need to do in the future, they won't have that education there. Yeah. And I mean, so that that's the thing, right? Is that the apprenticeship might get you up to a certain point where you can do well, but you might plateau depending on what it is you want to do, right? I think there are a lot of self-taught software engineers that will never plateau as long as they stay within the lane of software engineering. But then if they decide they want to go work for, you know, a company developing new cutting edge AI capabilities, right? That's not really developing code so much as understanding how the systems and the theory behind it works, right? And so it really just depends, I think, what lane you want to stay in. But, you know, it's hard to say. I think we really need to establish what the criteria looks like for teaching software engineering apprenticeships consistently, because I think the apprenticeships that you do see right now are very different, right? They're, like I said, they're unique and they're curtailed to whatever the specific environment or culture is that that person wants to get to at the end of the day. So it's really hard right now to do an apples to apples comparison of apprenticeships against degree based programs. And so what works for one company might definitely not work for another company. Um, And I think where the university system will still have that foothold is even though I'm seeing a lot of fracturing in the consistency of degree production of do two students with the same degree have the same learning outcomes, I still think they have a dominant hold on being able to make that argument where others can't. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's interesting territory, I think, uh, when we're thinking about this and when we think about um, this year on campus, all I heard from students was I'd, I'd ask them, so what are you looking for? And they're all looking for AI jobs. 
And you've yeah. alluded to this twice, like in our conversation, just in the last, you know, 45 minutes, you've alluded to, hey, like it's going to take some advanced thinking on some of these areas where we're thinking about machine learning and AI. Mm-hmm. And is that the, I mean, is that going to be reserved for the advanced degrees for the masters and the PhDs? Or is that something that can be, can, can I get that in a bachelor's and can I expect to be in a right. role? doing AI and machine learning. Well, and here's the really great example, one step removed actually. So if we talk about the cyber domain problems, if I give you an apprenticeship in cybersecurity, I'm gonna teach you how to use tools and analyze data to see when threats are coming in, to identify patterns, to identify weaknesses in systems or to defend and protect your own systems, right? But if I give you an apprenticeship in cybersecurity, you're going to learn all these operational capabilities, right, on how to secure or um, protect your infrastructure or your critical business systems. But that's a very different set of skills from then being the person who writes the software that those operators use, right? So now if I had an apprenticeship in cyber and I can now do these operational things for my company... I am not going to be able to turn around if I've only had the background of being a pen tester or a, you know, a maybe cyber forensics or, you know, whatever it is. If I then want to turn around two years later and go into a software engineering job, uh, developing software for cyber, cybersecurity, cyber operations folks, I'm not going to have the core computer science knowledge that I need or the core software engineering knowledge that I'm going to need, right? So like that apprenticeship, and that is a really great illustration of people think cyber and computer science are so intermingled and so close, which they are, but how you get there really does play a big role in that particular example. For example, if I have a computer science degree, I can definitely go in and do operational type cybersecurity stuff and get it. But if I have a cybersecurity degree and then I try and go back and do computer science theory, it's a little bit of a one-way trap door. I'm not going to have the same sets of skills that allowed me to get back to that generic way of thinking that a computer science degree is supposed to teach you. Um, when we swap out cyber operations for software engineering, and now it's software engineering against CS, I think they're closer worlds in the way that industry wants to use computer science. And I want to make that really clear. They are closer for the way industry wants to use people who have a computer science degree. If you have an apprenticeship in software engineering and you then want to decide, decide you want to go be a professor someday, you're starting at ground zero, right? It's going to get you nowhere in terms of like teaching, doing research papers, et cetera. It will get you very far potentially in working for a top fortune company like Apple, Google, Microsoft, et cetera, Amazon, and getting a job that is rewarding, pays well, et cetera, et cetera. So again, that outcome of what you want at the end and how confident you are about whether or not you think you're going to want to deviate, I think really does determine right now how successful the apprenticeship route is going to be for you. Christian, the startup world is slowing a little bit over the last, seems like, year or two. Uh, yes, not- the ice age in Silicon Valley has finally crested. How exciting. <laughs> it's uh, how how freaky well, it's interesting it's interesting yeah. in the sense that it's it's kind of cooled right uh but during those times we saw a lot of students come out who may or may not even have finished and in fact in my day uh when i was in high school uh back in the dark ages um you could fairly easily in the silicon valley just drop right out of high school it was not unusual to have students drop out of high school to start coding to, yeah. to take jobs and do that. As we think about today, and of course, as that market's cooled off a little bit, um, is there still space when we think about really bright students in the startup space? Oftentimes, like I said, they come without that. Limiting, not limiting? Does I mean, obviously, sometimes it works, but many times it doesn't. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think if you have that entrepreneurial spirit and you have a vision for a startup and the next big idea, like I think the apprenticeship thing doesn't really apply in that space nearly as much. Um, a lot of the people that you find that are starting companies have a obviously a mixture of business background with technical background. It's a very different like hodgepodge of self-taught skills, especially if you drop out of college halfway through. Um, The startup culture fascinates me when it comes to this topic, though, because if you look at the history of what's going on in Silicon Valley, 
so many of these companies would get wildly overvaluated, right? After the, you know, successes with the, you know, Steve Jobs built it in his garage and then Mark Zuckerberg and he kind of coded on a bench and, you know, it was enough of these like aspirational stories that now a venture capitalist was willing to write you a check for $2 million with very little proof of concept being required to be shown. That has finally cooled. Like I think people have finally realized that just because you get behind a keyboard and log in doesn't mean you are suddenly Superman. And venture capitalists were dead convinced of it. Like, oh, if you were the next drop out of college and you started a business, like it was just a question of throwing paint on the wall to find someone who's willing to fund you. It wasn't a question of whether or not you would. So I think a lot of people maybe benefited early on that hype curve who otherwise wouldn't succeed in today's climate, which is it's definitely cooled a bit. There's a higher bar to getting that that seed funding. And I think the skills and the way people end up in startup culture are still very different from both traditional job out of college with a four-year degree and traditional job after going through an apprenticeship that's curtailed towards a company, right? I don't really see apprenticeships being very prevalent right now in the startup community. Um, it generally is, you know, that one to end dynamic, maybe one to five people who have a vision that they're going after and it's a dog with a bone, right? That's a very different dynamic than someone who's setting personal career goals versus someone who's setting goals to try and change the world with the company they're building. Like two different spheres, in my opinion. Well, and sometimes different kinds of projects, right? When, yeah, when we absolutely. think about, we, when we think about kind of the startup culture and what they're doing with a Twitter or a Facebook, whatever. And then we think about maybe the work that went on, what's going on at DARPA that is, is more, or, or, I mean, go back to the origins of the internet. That's not necessarily a startup culture doing that, right? I mean, it's 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 a team, it's universities, it's government funded. There's a lot of work going into this in a shared kind of a, uh, um, academic culture where those kinds of things, even kind of though they're a little bit secretive, still have a have a place to grow, right? It's not one guy starting it in his garage. It's a bunch of people where there's a you know a conglomerate coming together and in, in some good ideas. Um, you know, kind of coming together as those people are putting together as a team. So I think sometimes those infrastructure jobs, those infrastructure um, ideas are going to take a little bit more than just the startup, right? It's, it's uh, I don't know. And I certainly there, I'm probably wrong. There's like in everything, there's certain situations where it's different, but I, you know, as we think about what's going on, just think about really what's going on with space right now. And that's mm. not, I mean, yes, those are startup guys that are doing this. Yeah. But they're doing it with institutional size money. I mean, sure, the, sure. the amount of money that that Tesla and, well, I should say SpaceX and, and you know, some of the other companies that are throwing at this, they're throwing government size money. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think it's a problem that it will have longer term yield, right? It's not like the does this thing really work or not? I think is a longer time frame with something like a space company than it is with yeah. something like a, a yeah. software company. But right? you got to admit SpaceX is a little bit, is run a little bit like a startup. And so, Oh yeah, no, absolutely. It just yeah. has funding that is not like a venture a round, no, right? It's no. big, big dollars. We're talking. It's got, it certainly has money behind it and it's an interesting culture, um, which is great though. I mean, I, I think it's an exciting time to be, to be doing this kind of stuff. And I think whether you're in high school and you're thinking about a career and this of just trying to get out there and do it, which are some are, or you're going to go through college or you're going to go on to get advanced degrees. I think there's places for all of that to exist. Like, I don't think it has to be one or the other. I think there is a place for the high school student who just wants to crush some code. I think there's a place for your master, for your bachelor's student who gets a bachelor's degree in computer science to work in the industry. And I, we definitely need masters and PhD students cracking the code mm -hmm. on some of the most important things around, you know, around technology. We, we have to have all of those. That whole system has to work. Some folks have said, ah, do away with it all, right? We don't need degrees anymore. It's too expensive. Well, no, actually we do. <laughs> like yeah. we still need those, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Right but, but I do understand the pressure of the enterprise. We are desperately short at times 
folks who will come in and do the manufacturing processes of code. Right. Like I, I think there's just some of that, and maybe that's the difference. Sometimes you have to invent the printing press. Sometimes you just need to run it, right? And oftentimes we need technical people who's just willing to run the printing press, right? And get things done. And so um, we've got, I think in industry, we got to figure out how to support all those in a lot of ways. And, and I definitely see this no degree uh, mantra, this no degree initiative. It is definitely coming from a place of they're tired of nobody being available and they're like, screw it. We'll just pull people out of high school that have coding skills. I think, and Christian, maybe last question. I just don't think there's that many high schoolers out there who can actually do that. I mean, some can. I, I think it's a pretty specialized skill to be able to jump right out of high school, right into a job and do enterprise grade code. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, there's definitely a level, regardless of how smart you are, there's definitely a level of maturity that comes with just seeing and digesting business processes. And if you've never been in that culture and environment, um, it's not to say that a post high schooler won't succeed, but I think out of box expectations are they would need at least a year or two before yeah. you could really evaluate whether or not they've adapted to the climate. Uh, we're thinking too, and we're thinking very special case. We don't think just everybody can. There's right. some there's some maturing process that goes on in the university Absolutely. system, which yeah. we need. Sometimes you just need to cook a little bit longer yep. before you jump in. I do. I would love to see some. Uh, some less expensive options. I mean, uh, we yeah. do, we've got a university system that's out of control from a cost perspective. Some of that's self-inflicted. Some of that's university inflicted. I don't, a lot of folks associate that with greed and I don't, I, I don't think colleges are being greedy. I think they're competing for students. They're trying to upgrade their place to be. They do need to attract, they do need to create those environments to attract some of the best students to come and be a part of it. I think they have to do some of that to compete. I also think there's a keeping up with the Joneses effect that's going on. And because of the influx of money, both foreign and national in the, in the form of student loans, it's been a little bit like crack money for the colleges. It's just this flow of money that keeps coming in. If we do get some students who decide in a, in a majority of them who decide, eh, screw it, I'm not going to go. Man, that could that could cause a domino effect that you know many of these colleges are in debt now as they've overbuilt and um, and they're depending on a a student base of free federal money in in the form of student loans. That if that dries up for some reason, I mean, if the federal government said we can't guarantee student loans anymore, yeah, oh yeah, no kidding. <laughs> listen, the system would come apart at the seams. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the big cliff I think that's waiting out there is just like is it always going to be this way? Like what happens if the Department of Education decides they're no longer in the business of student loans and they Listen, have to, they have to go back to private or personal loans? I applied for Samantha's loans this year and it went up a little bit and there was like they gave me not twice as much but they gave me more than I even asked for. Right. And ended up getting a rebate check back from them to to be like okay, we got too much. You know, and I immediately, of course, I sent that rebate check right on, right back to the student loan center and had that, you know, uh, basically rebate the amount that I had so it would bring down the payments for the future. Yep. But um, you know, it is, it was it was a one it was like a one click application and bam the money was there and we're not talking like a little bit of money we're talking like a lot of bit of money yeah. and I'm just afraid at some point somebody's going to go. Um, because it's a different conversation, Christian. Honestly, for my daughter, it's a different conversation if all the loan money can't get there. Like we start yeah. having different conversations. Absolutely. And, um, and the school I'm representing on my shirt today probably doesn't have her as a student. So that could affect, imagine that on a 30% scale. You know, what if 30% of the students started deciding I'm gonna go to the local junior college and and bypass you know, bypass those first couple of years, like you mentioned in the very beginning of the show, that could have a significant impact on the system, you know? So um, I, I hope, I mean, I think it could rival, it would be an interesting crisis. It may not rival 2009, just to be honest, but that system is going to go into shock and, uh, and it could get ugly pretty quick. Anything else you want to add, Christian? No, certainly could be a big area on that. But uh, before we wrap up tonight, I definitely want to switch gears to um, a question I got from one of our listeners, Ken, 
and this has been a topic that I've been passionate about too lately, um, uh, remote desktop solutions, which I know sounds hilarious, but like everyone wants that free, like help your grandmother out with a desktop or whatever it is. Uh, what's the free software to do that without having a formal firewall or other otherwise in place? And TeamViewer for the longest time has been what everyone and their uncle seems to gravitate towards. Um, they've been doing a lot of dev on TeamViewer lately, like a lot of changes. We're on TeamViewer 13 now. Um, one of the new things that they've been doing lately is they rolled out this new feature that like tries to figure out if they suspect you're using it commercially or for free. And so I've only ever used TeamViewer in a personal capacity and I get this little pop-up that's like, we suspect you of blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, so uh, one of the listeners uh, kind of brought this to my attention and said like, are there any alternatives for TeamViewer? And it seems that I've actually heard several people um, thinking about this, like, uh, I got to find a way to get off TeamViewer. But um, I think this definitely has been an impetus for it. And I now got asked by a listener directly about it. Um, the big one that I think is probably the most average guy replacement in terms of like what TeamViewer offered as an average guy is probably, can't believe I'm saying this, the Chrome desktop app for Google Chrome. So pretty simple plugin. Everyone has Google Chrome. You've already surrendered most of your life to Google, whether or not you know it or not. Like you might as well just install the plugin at that point and move on. Um, one of the questions that was asked in this email to me was, how do you, is there an easy way to tell if remote desktop software is secure or not? Like the software that you're getting. Uh, because a lot of remote desktop software has been kind of the subject of what, you know, when the 1-800 scam line calls and, and they're trying to scam you, they might use legitimate remote access software to then infect your PC. And so this has been traditionally a big problem for um, companies in general who get into the remote access business because their legitimate software is now being affiliated with malicious actions. So in order to combat that, I think there's both a reputational piece here. Um, really hard to tell on the surface with some of these software platforms if they're reputable. Um, one of the ones specifically I was asked about was uh, Supermo at supermocontrol.com. Um, I generally tell people like could be legitimate, might not be, but if it's not used by a large body of people yet, I would just steer the average guy away from them in general. Um, especially because these are typically the types of ones that people will use um, to do malicious things with. And, you know, Windows and otherwise are notorious for leaving behind little files after you uninstall anyway. Um, and so you'll find that's the case with a lot of reputable software as well. So I just don't think there's a lot of data points for the average guy to properly evaluate whether or not these remote desktop softwares are doing things that they're not sure that they want to be doing. Um, I think with TeamViewer, it's owned by Microsoft. So that's a big reputational rating for you. And with the Google Chrome plugin, it's owned by Google. So um, great reputational indicators that something sketchy isn't going to happen to your system. Um, but certainly, I think a lot of free platforms have fallen by the wayside in terms of opportunities. Like a lot of the remote desktop solutions that you want to be as easy and out of the box are, are definitely premium at this point. Yeah, so log me in and some of those other ones have. Yep. Have go to meeting, in. log me in, et cetera. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So recommendation is uh, to Ken and others who are in that boat who want to try something different from TeamViewer. I would go check out the Chrome uh, remote desktop plugin and see how that fits your needs. I, I just had that problem. My mom contact, contacted me like any normal mom does on my Facebook page, like my feed. Hey, Jim, I need you to call me right now. Someone's attacked my computer, right? And, uh, of course, everybody saw that, the whole family, everybody like, oh, you know, I got the, you got to go help mom. Um, I actually tried to use the Google Chrome, you know, remote desktop. Getting her to actually make that work was nearly impossible. Yep. So it is going to be one of those things you probably want to set that up in advance, like be on site, set it up. It, my mom doesn't have Google credentials, so I was trying to give her mine. I was trying to read the password to her, my 16 character, right? Oh, gosh. Hey, hey, what? Disastrous. S is in who? 
Oh, it was horrible. It was, I got so mad at her. I almost yelled at her on the phone. I was so like, Oh, can you just, yeah. so I ended up cause I, so I got the same notification you did team viewer on my main computer. Hey, we think you're a business. You can't use this. We went 50 bucks a month. Well, probably not going to pay 50 bucks a month for that. I would pay $50 a year for that. That would, that would be something I would probably plunk down 50 bucks for just not 50 bucks a month team viewer. So it's not like I don't have other computers. So I went to another computer and installed team viewer and that is now my team viewer and it's working so far. I don't, I haven't put it, I haven't logged into it or saved things in it or whatever, but it allowed me to connect to her computer just to do what I needed to do and then got off, right? Shut it down. And, and I try not to leave team viewer. I got hacked through team viewer a couple years ago. And so I'm a little, I'm a little gun shy about leaving team viewer running any longer. Fortunately, I didn't lose anything in the process, but um, yeah, no, I'm glad. Um, who asked that question? That was, uh, that was Ken Bracken. Okay, good. Good, Ken. Thanks for asking that. It has been one. We've been we've been seeing a lot of it around. Like, what do you use? And so that's a good one, indeed. Um, uh, Christian, next time we do this, we're going to do a little crypto update because I think the crypto space is even mm. more interesting today than it was just six months ago. Indeed. And so we'll put you on the hook for a little bit of a how Christian sees crypto. I get that's the second question I get. The first one is, what do I use to replace TeamViewer two? When is Christian going to talk about crypto? So maybe on 51, we'll lead the show off with you giving us an update of where you think uh, crypto. It's a weird place right now. And uh, it's just, I'd be interested in hearing what you think about it. Totally different. Definitely. Than it was just a a few years ago. We'll remind everyone, don't forget, rate, uh, rate, subscribe, and review if you can. And whatever, wherever you're listening to this, we appreciate you doing that. If you want to do that for us, that's great. Follow us on Spreaker as well if you want to get it done that way. But uh, get this thing subscribed. We're not going anywhere. And we're not as regular as we could be. But we are regular. So make sure you get subscribed so you never missed an episode. Don't forget TheAverageGuy.tv powered and powered handily, I might say, by Maple Grove Partners. Get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people that you know and you trust super fast, too. For more information, visit maplegrovepartners.com. If you have questions like Ken did and you want to send those to Christian, to send to him Christian at theaverageguy.tv. You can find me, Jim, at theaverageguy.tv. Track us down on Twitter as well, at Jay Collison. And Christian is at Board Whisper. I hope you enjoyed the show. I certainly did. It was I finally got a chance to talk about something I know something about, although I don't know if it was that, that helpful. We want to thank you for listening. With that, we'll say goodnight. Good night. Good night.